Hey there, and welcome to the podcast for this Friday, March the 5th. Coming up, we'll run down the latest COVID headlines heading into the weekend with vaccine researcher Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. Plus, we'll also discuss Toronto moving into the gray zone, the lockdown zone next week. And we'll also talk to Brantford's mayor about the passing of Canada's ultimate hockey dad, Walter Gretzky. That's all next here on the pod. And let's get right to vaccine researcher Dr. Iris Gorfinkel is on the line and joins us here on Global News Radio. Dr. Gorfinkel, you and I were just talking the other day about AstraZeneca arriving here in Canada. Now we've got a fourth vaccine, Johnson & Johnson just approved. I don't know about you, but uh, I am feeling here this afternoon more hopeful than ever. How about you? I have to agree. I am so stoked. Look at this. It's number four, the fourth vaccine we have in our armamentarium. True, we don't know when we're going to be getting it exactly, but I think that optimism is reflected by today's announcement. Look how we're moving up phase three. It's now in July when everyone can hope to get vaccinated. So let's talk about this new vaccine just a little bit. What's the upshot on J&J? So the study looked at 40,000 individuals in eight countries. And what did they find? Like the other vaccines, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, a 100% reduction in deaths. In other words, after getting the shot, no one, no one died of COVID-19. Can we take that for granted? An 85% reduction in severe disease. Like that's tremendous. What that means is that our hospitals will be far less stressed and a 66% reduction in moderate disease. And that includes against the B117 variant, and that is up and coming in Ontario right now. So it's, it's, it's tremendous news, and I'm very excited. So how does this vaccine work? You know, so we've heard about the messenger RNA vaccines. That's the Pfizer and the Moderna. So the J&J vaccine takes a cold virus called adenovirus and completely inactivates it. In other words, it cannot be, it's not active in the body as a cold virus. But what that does is that it holds the key to the spike protein. So it allows the body to start manufacturing the spike protein. And that's the same instruction manual as the messenger RNA vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna. And then the body produces an immune response. But it is very, very exciting. It actually has good efficacy, reasonable efficacy, against even the South African variant, which is not a huge variant as yet, but could become a variant of concern in Ontario. All right. I wanted to ask you about that when it comes to J&J. You're satisfied with, uh, you like the efficacy rate? Because I know there has been some questions uh, about that uh, concerning the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Well, this is the deal. I hear this all the time. People are like comparing the vaccines. I want the 95% effective vaccine. And, you know, people hear, oh, it's only 85% in reducing severe disease. First, they're all 100% effective in reducing death. And that's like a huge thing. Secondly, we cannot compare vaccine A to vaccine B. And why can't we? Because they were done in completely different populations at different times, with different levels of variance of concern, and different seasons. I mean, you cannot compare an apple to an orange, and so unfortunately we have no head-to-head data on which is the best vaccination. And it's frustrating. I wish we did. I wish I could say, oh, you could, you know, this one is better than that one, but you actually cannot even compare the numbers because the numbers are not comparable. 
So what we know is the, the best data we have is, is the large real-life data that's coming out of other countries that have, in fact, already approved it. And when we take a look at that, we see profound reductions in hospitalizations, profound reductions in how sick people get. So it's very exciting that we're seeing J&J adding to, added to our armamentarium. And I understand, I mean, we have pre-purchased 10 million doses of the stuff. So, and we have a, a right to get another 28, an option to get another 28 million more doses. So it is very exciting. Okay. Now, Johnson & Johnson is also only one shot. Having said that, these other vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, we're hearing from the Ontario government, they are taking the lead off of uh, BC and several other provinces now, and they've decided to extend the dosage interval. It's been uh, extended out to as much as four months. Are you comfortable with that? I am totally comfortable with that. And again, the real-world data is, is supportive of that decision. You know, so what we know is that even after one dose, it's not like it just disappears. The body actually retains the memory of how to fight the virus successfully. And it does that for months. You know, so if we look at, at our experience with other vaccines, we know that it can be given years later, a year later. It doesn't really change that much. It doesn't change that rapidly. So why did the original trials give a vaccine so quickly, a, a booster shot so quickly? We know a booster shot is necessary. Everyone has to have a booster shot. The question is, when is the optimal time? Understand, when Pfizer and Moderna had done their trials, it was critical that they get the data in as soon as possible. And the, cho the chosen time of one month was ra actually rather arbitrary. They could have gone with two months, but they went with one month because they needed the data sooner. And we know that that second shot, what it does is lock in that long-term immune response. You know, so whether that long-term immune response is locked in two months later or four months later, it makes very little difference. And that's what we now have learned from the real-world data, which involves far more people than the original trials. Okay. You know, yeah, sorry, I wanted to ask you too, because I only got about a minute left here, and the other big piece of news this afternoon is that Toronto and Peel, we're going to gray next week, gray lockdown, which means retail can uh, reopen to customers. Do you have any concerns at all around these restrictions uh, relaxing in uh, these hot zones? It's, it's such a tough call, because on the one hand, you know, you have a big reduction in the total case number. And that's, that's actually hugely, um, like, it's hugely encouraging, right? So if you look at the numbers from January, they've really come down. But what's coming up, and rather rapidly, is that variant of concern called B117. That's the U.K. variant. And, you know, some of the estimates is that that variant will be 40% of what we're seeing by the middle of the month. Now, will it or will it not? But the problem is, is that variant is so much more transmissible, and that's the issue. So right now our numbers are low, but will they stay that way if, we're, if what takes over is this much more transmissible variant of concern, if this B117 takes over? If we have a much more transmissible virus on our hands, what will happen is that far more people have to be vaccinated in order to achieve herd immunity. In other words, 
we think it's going to be between 90, 80 and 90 percent, something like that. And we were, we were singing this song about 70 percent with the original variant. If 70 percent of us were vaccinated, that'll, that'll stop the spread of the disease. Well, if you've got something that's way more contagious, you've got to vaccinate way more people, so 80 to 90 percent. And that's the concern about opening a little too early and too aggressively. You know, All right. And the, sorry, yeah. I was going to say that's why it's all that more critical that we get as many needles in arms as quickly as possible. And good news on that front today with Johnson and Johnson being greenlit and also word that uh, more vaccine is coming more than expected from a Pfizer as well. We got that from the prime minister earlier today. Dr. Gorfinkel, I got to leave it there, but thank you as always. Have a happy and safe weekend. I got a big smile on my face. You can't see it, but it is exciting news. Thank you so much. Yeah. Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, pleasure as always. All right, welcome back on a Friday, and we're in mourning. We're in mourning today. After the great one, Wayne Gretzky tweeted out last night that his father, Walter, had passed away at the age of 82. And joining us now to remember the life of Canada's hockey dad is the mayor of Brantford. Kevin Davis is on the line and joins us now on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Mayor, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Um, yeah, you're right. It's a sad day for Bradford. But uh, lots of us, pretty much everybody in the community has got a memory of something about Walter, some experience with Walter. And generally, they're pretty good memories. You bet. And listen, our condolences. And uh, what has the response been like there in your city today? You know, a lot of sadness. But I think at the same time, you know, recognizing how lucky we were as a community to have such, you know, an extraordinary person who demonstrated such commitment to our community, so devoted to our community. And you know what? He really made us feel proud of our community, not just proud of all the accomplishments of members of the Gretzky family, but just his devotion to our community. And that's a part that I don't think people outside Brantford you know, you don't see that. The, across the country, there's the connection to Walter, I'm sure, because he's, you know, an iconic sports uh, figure, being Canada's hockey dad. But, you know, the affection this community had for Walter uh, goes far beyond that and is more about the type of person he was and what he did for the community, for charities, for minor sports, for his neighbors. Um, it's <laughs> He lived... Uh, he was a mentor for many in this community in many ways. And I'm glad you brought that up. I had that here in my notes to ask you about, because I think one of the things that really resonates with so many of us when it comes to the Gretzky's as a family and to Walter Gretzky in particular is just that, that he was true to his roots and he never left your great city of Brantford. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's part of the reason why he is so beloved in our community, because you're right. He, he obviously had opportunities to, you know, move out of the neighborhood that uh, that Wayne was raised in, uh, but continued to live, he and his wife Phyllis, in that home uh, in North Brantford, uh, sort of a side split. And he was happy living there and happy living on his street. And you know, even you'd hear stories, he's famous for the stories of how he would help his neighbors and uh you know, until he was no longer able to do it. Like, he'd be out there in the winter helping to shovel his neighbor's uh, sidewalks. He had some neighbors who were senior citizens, older than him, and he'd help them. And they didn't have to ask him. He just did it. So you know, uh, I was going to mention uh, this. Uh, 
Sorry, I was going to mention uh, this in a little bit, but uh, early in my radio career, I was in London, Ontario, and we came to, to Bramford to do a remote broadcast, and we invited Walter to uh, join us uh, on the show. And similar to the stories uh, you're just relating there, uh, we just phoned the house. He picked up the phone, said, yeah, when do you need me? He came down. He was there uh, half an hour before we needed him. He stayed for the entire broadcast, and he even helped us pack up afterwards, Mayor. It just blew my mind. There's tons of stories like that in Brantford, and the one I like to tell is, is we in Brantford, most everybody has a personal story about um, about Walter, and, and I didn't know him as well as others, but there's two events that I was involved in where I spent quite a bit of time with him. One was a provincial swim meet because we have a, a you know a very extensive aquatic center here, and it was a Saturday evening and it was the Saturday finals and the awards and we had dignitaries there. And of course, if you asked if you asked Walter if he was available, he would he would come. Um, so, anyways, he was there and I introduced uh, the MP, the member of parliament, and the member of the provincial parliament. Was, you know, this polite little applause from people all across the province, and all I had to say was. And we also have Canada's most famous hockey dad. And the place just went crazy. And, you know, after the event, like, he didn't just leave. He stayed for hours talking to kids, telling them stories, signing autographs. And lots of parents, of course, wanted his autograph as well. And, you know, that that left a very indelible impression on me that, uh, you know, just what a role model he was for all of us, that, uh, you know, how to carry yourself as a, a responsible community member and, uh, in, you know, public service and, and the devotion to various charities, you know, like the, the CNIB and uh, the Heart and Stroke, and even how he, you know, he was, his manner was very humble, very extremely kind and generous and, you know, a role model and mentor in many ways. You know, it. Uh, you're absolutely right about him staying as long as needed and even longer at uh, events and being very approachable to uh, people because I don't know about you, uh, Mayor, but uh, my social media feed today is just flooded with people with their photos with Walter Gretzky. I mean, it's it's really incredible to see. Yeah, and if you looked at a lot of the social media here in Brantford, it, you know, it's full of stories about someone having a contact with Walter, some story of a personal interaction with Walter. So, you know, it goes way beyond just the, the hockey dad thing. It's, this is what, this was my experience with Walter. Another one I tell is another charity event, and uh, he was uh, the dignitary there. And so I spent the afternoon with him. And of course, you know, people coming up to him all the time. And, you know, unlimited patience to deal with them and be very kind to them because I think like he enjoyed people. That was pretty obvious. Mm -hmm. And then, and then he had a little, he was a little sly. He asked me, he said, do you play history trivia? And I like to think that I was a bit of a history buff. And I said, sure. So it'll break. He said, well, let's, so he started to play history trivia with me. And I quickly figured out he knew a lot more about history than I did. Um, But, you know, even through that, he still made me feel pretty good about the knowledge that I had, which paled in comparison to his uh, knowledge about uh, about anything in terms of history. But that was a part of I didn't know. But by the end of the afternoon, I knew it very well. Yeah, can you give us some details, uh, Mayor, on uh, what's going on there in Brantford this afternoon? Because we're hearing uh, reports that kind of uh, impromptu memorials have kind of uh, been established or uh, set up uh, at the arena, bearing Wayne's name there, and uh, at the family home. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And 
has been suggested on social media uh, that uh, I think people are doing this, putting a hockey stick uh, on your porch or outside your door, leaning against your house, because, of course, uh, all about hockey being Walter. And uh, so that's kind of catching on. So, and as I said, you know, (laughs) you wouldn't do that because you've got someone in your community that's famous. You do that because that person meant a lot to a lot of people and but meant a tremendous amount to, to our community. And people want to express in some way uh, their affection for him. Because that is that is the that's the difference that I saw in Walter and uh, just the genuine affection people had for him in Brantford. Now, I know that Walter Gretzky carried the title of Brantford's Lord Mayor. Uh, will there be any other sort of tributes or a city memorial? Will something be in the works uh, in the weeks and uh, months uh, to come to really uh, memorialize Walter Gretzky? Yeah, I expect there will be. Um, you know, we want to, to work with the family, and uh, we're waiting to find out uh, what it is the family will be comfortable with. Because first and foremost, Walter was about family, and so... Uh, we want to respect that and 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 do and assist in any way we can uh, for the family. But at the same time, there's such a great deal of affection for Walter that you know the, I'm sure most of the community would um, all the community I'm sure 100 percent would like to do something special to recognize what an extraordinary person he was uh, and how much he meant to us as a community. The Mayor of Brantford, Kevin Davis. Mayor, thanks again for joining us. And again, our uh, condolences to everybody in the city. Yeah, thanks very much, Jeff. Appreciate it. Walter Gretzky passing away yesterday at the age of uh, 82. And uh, Mary, I don't know about you, if you ever had a chance to uh, interact or had any any interactions uh, with Walter, but... uh, I got to tell you, my earliest memory of uh, Walter Gretzky was like mid 80s, like 1984, 1985. Uh, I was playing hockey in Burlington and we would occasionally play Brantford and Glenn Gretzky was on the uh, Brantford squad. And I can remember uh, Walter coming into the rink to uh, see his uh, son play. And it was like royalty uh, was there, w- w- was in the rink. Because, again, this is like 84, 85 when uh, Wayne is at the height of his powers with the Oilers and uh, won uh, one or two uh, Stanley Cups. And, again, it, it felt like royalty was in the building. But Walter never gave that uh, off. Uh, he just uh, was as uh, humble and just as happy to talk to anybody and everybody uh, in the in the rink, and just wanted to be uh, what he uh, well was known as uh, Canada's hockey dad. Nice, you know that's such a wonderful story, and there's so many stories, and we're hearing so many of them now about this, you know, incredible person. And you know, you think about a hockey dad, you know, taking the kids out to the rink and being there for every game and supporting them through all the ups and the downs, and you know, doing all that. And in in many ways, I mean, Walter Retzky reminds me of my own dad. He was a hockey dad, and to my nephews and my brother-in-law, and I personally didn't play hockey, but. He was always there on the bench. He was always there doing whatever the kids needed on the ice and always, like you said, help and happy to, you know, happy to stay and help pack up at the end of something. But just always a big smile, big heart and full of joy. And Mm -hmm. uh, he's definitely going to be missed. And when I was talking to the folks uh, earlier to set up this interview, there was sorrow in their voices. Uh, But the, the good thing we have to remember is that there's so much joy that he's left with so many of us.
Absolutely. And you know, I had the honor to sit down with Walter Gretzky three, four times uh, during my career. I still remember the first time I had a chance to interview Walter. It's kind of early 2000s. It was shortly after Wayne, of course, retired in 1999. And we were going down memory lane. And I still remember the joy in his eyes and in his voice. I mean, I'm sure he'd been asked the story, obviously, like a zillion times in the past. But he told it as if it was the first time he was ever asked about the backyard rink. And he always made the point of us saying, and it's uh, so true, it's such a great line. He said, I didn't want it. Wayne wanted it because uh, Wayne wanted to practice so much. He wanted to be out there of all hours of the day and night. And he says, uh, I put it out there not for Wayne. I put it out there for me. It was self-preservation because I didn't have to. I could watch him yeah. from the house. Uh, I didn't have to be out there in the cold with him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's dedication and devotion, and what a great story. I mean, what a great Canadian story and a great Canadian legacy that he's left with us uh, about the great game of hockey. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of us are carrying a bit of a heavy heart today with the news that, uh, yes, Canada's hockey dad, Walter Gretzky, passing yesterday at the age of 82. Okay, got lots of news when it comes to vaccines and reopening here for the city of Toronto. Joining us now to sort through it all, the city's deputy mayor, Stephen Holliday, is on the line and joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Mr. Holliday, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Okay, I want to start with uh, Toronto going into gray lockdown starting next week, if we could, because there seems to be some confusion around this. I, for one, thought we were already in lockdown. Uh, what will next week, uh, what's it going to look like? How's the city going to look different? Yeah, there's uh, the the provincial framework is uh, is out there. If anyone wants to go on the website and, and check it out, I mean, all the little twiddly bits and information is there. But confusing. So we were in what was called the shutdown zone, I guess was the official name, and then we had this stay at home order layered on top of that. I guess the biggest change uh, is that it used to say you must stay at home. You can only go out for those necessities. And now the answer is you should stay at home. And we know, I think, the big change that you and I will feel is that uh, some of the stores that were considered non-essential now get to open up for in-person shopping with restrictions. Um, but many of this, the restrictions that uh, we have lived through over the last couple of months are going to remain in place uh, as long as we're in this gray zone. All right, so uh, what uh, shops, what retail outlets do we know are going to be able to open starting in next week? For example, is the Eaton Centre going to finally reopen? Uh, yeah, I'm just looking at here. Um, there's, there's a handy little chart that the city put on the website, but uh, shopping malls can open with restrictions, but the stores inside still have a 25% capacity. And that's to keep people from crowding in the store and dealing with issues of virus transmission. Um, but still, that's something that we didn't have before and we haven't had for quite some time. And I am sure that uh, small businesses and the retailers are overjoyed to finally uh, reopen their doors after 100 plus days consecutive of being closed and particularly over their uh, busy holiday uh, shopping season. But how are we going to make sure that people remain safe and stay safe and that uh, these uh, capacities, 25 percent capacity rate that that's adhered to? Well, I think a lot of the things that we're talking about are small business. 
you know, I, I think of a florist up the street. I mean, now they have the chance that you can go into the store and you can get what you need instead of doing just simply delivery or transactions over the phone. But, uh, you know, I have a lot of trust in small businesses. They know their, their venues. They know their stores. They know how to keep people safe. And look, it's good for business to act responsibly. At the end of the day, though, they are still subject to provincial orders, and I suppose they could they could find themselves in trouble if they abuse the rules. But, you know, like I said, I think I think the uh, small businesses are pretty responsible, and I think they're pretty happy about being able to open up. So I anticipate they will do it safely. Yeah, is this something that the city is generally supportive of? It has been some time now since small businesses have been able to uh, open their doors, as I just uh, mentioned. Or is there some uh, concern here with the variant out there that uh, perhaps maybe uh, it should be a couple of more weeks still till we really know uh, what's happening with these variants? Well, the variant is a really important thing. Uh, I mean, I had a chance to go to a briefing with Dr. Devella and the city manager and Chief Peg uh, just a couple hours ago to talk about some of these things. And, um, you know, the variant is out there and it, it currently, well, the variants make up about 25% of the virus out there. And they know, based on what's happening in other jurisdictions, that they will become more and more prevalent. But if you look at our numbers, although we've been dropping in numbers since mid-January, we're hitting a bit of a plateau where it's flattening out. And flattening out, not necessarily in a good way. we still got, you know, 350 cases per day. That's not going down further is what, what I mean by flattening out. So there is concern out there uh, about avoiding a third wave. And that's why I think we still see ourselves in the gray zone and not moving more quickly into the other zones like red or some of the other colors. Which makes vaccination all that more critical. And let's uh, shift our focus to that now because the uh, province has just uh, unveiled uh, several phases. Phase two of this uh, mass deliveries of vaccines uh, will commence as of next month, uh, as of uh, April. Can you give us, uh, Mr. Halliday, some idea of uh, how the city is going to start uh, administering uh, vaccinations, particularly on a mass scale? Yeah, there's a big plan. It's been put together. It's also online if you want to go look at it. But most people really need to know that there's an online booking system coming from the province that will tell most of us, you know, when you need to go, where you need to go, and you know, how this is going to work. But yes, the city does have nine vaccination centers. They're, they're just about all of them are ready to go. Some of them are literally lights out, the doors are closed. And as soon as the supply shows up, the city can activate those and, and get them working. So there's nine of those. And then there's about 100 um, community health partners. These include hospitals and community health organizations that are set up to run clinics. And then up to 250 pharmacies. But don't expect those to just switch their lights on, you know, in, in the next day or two. This is all dependent on when and how much of the vaccine arrives at the city. And the number that I heard recently was, you know, there's about 30,000 a week. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of doses that are needed to put this level of machinery into action. Yeah. Can I ask you why we seem particularly in Toronto to be so far behind? I mean, for example, Alberta, they say they've announced that they're ready to expand their vaccination program to those 75 and over as of March the 15th. And uh, we seem to be just kind of getting going and ramping up. Interesting question. It's a function of population and then who's in the population. So Canada has been, uh, you know, at the highest level dispersing vaccines to the provinces and the provinces disperses it to the cities. But let's let's look at phase one in Toronto is like 350,000 people. And within that 350, I think 130,000 of them are 80 plus. So we haven't even made it through all those 350 so far. I think there's been almost 200,000 doses administered, but that doesn't cover phase one. 
So, and you look at it, a lot of them are healthcare workers, and some of them don't even live in the city of Toronto, but they're here getting the vaccine. So there's some very interesting questions about, you know, how much burden we've got in the city. But at the end of the day, there's just a lot of people here, and a lot of administration needs to be done in a very limited supply. Yeah, we heard from General Hillier last hour that some 113 uh, clinics uh, will eventually be up and running, mass vaccination clinics uh, in the province. Do you know how many will be here in Toronto and how soon will it be till uh, he also talked about family doctors and I know you mentioned uh, as well pharmacies here when they'll be up and running and be able to give out the vaccine? It all depends on the supply. So the network is there, the communication structure is there, they are ready to go. And and in terms of mass vaccinations, uh, their sites run by the city, there are nine. I think there's uh, roughly 50 sites that have to do in conjunction with hospitals and then another 50 or so that have to do in conjunction with community health teams. And then the balance of those 350 would be those dispersed things like pharmacies. Yeah, just finally, uh, Mr. Halliday, I wanted to ask you when you think uh, Toronto can kind of get back. Do we have a, a greater sense today? There's been a lot of positive news with uh, Johnson & Johnson uh, being greenlit by Health Canada today and also uh, Pfizer uh, now uh, over-delivering, if you will, on their uh, supply for the next uh, couple of months. And I know the provincial government has said as of uh, July, adults 59 and younger will be able to get uh, vaccinated. Is there a sense, at least in the back half of a summer, we can get to some kind of a normal here in the city? Well, there's always optimism. With nicer weather, people feel better, but it's also a safer place to be outdoors interacting with other people. And, you know, that, that's going to be a helpful thing. But I think it's a combination of Mother Nature and how these variants act and play out. I think it's a combination of people's behavior to make sure that we avoid a third wave. And of course, that really important thing, the vaccine supply, the liquid gold. And as more of that comes online and is available, we get it into people's arms. And I think things will start looking a lot better soon. Yeah. Do you feel as if we're really kind of turning a corner? Because I think a lot of people uh, sort of feel and uh, believe that with uh, the news today. Or are you maybe, is the city a little more cautiously optimistic? Well, I think cautiously optimistic. It's a tumultuous time because of these variants and where we are with our national supply of vaccine. Um, we are where we are because of the, those supply chains. Other countries uh, maybe got the variants earlier, but they were also on top of the vaccines earlier. So we'll see how that all plays out. But I think we're just at such a critical place. And I think that's why you see public officials still keeping us in the gray zone, which is a very, very high level of lockdown. And that's because we don't want to go the wrong way. All right. Toronto's Deputy Mayor Stephen Halliday. Mr. Halliday, appreciate the time as always. Have a safe weekend. Thank you. Yeah, you too.